1: Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. My name is Yaron Peleg, and my guest today is Rachel Harris, who is Associate Professor of Israeli Literature and Culture at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Rachel has written two books to date. Her first book was, is called Ideological Death, Suicide in Israeli Literature from 2014. And we're going to talk about her, uh, her new book, which was published last year, Called Warriors, Witches, Whores, Women in Israeli Cinema. Hello, Rachel. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I think uh, it would be good to start with you giving our readers—I'm sorry, our uh, listeners—some a summary of of your new book. And uh, once you do that, we can discuss it in a little bit more depth. But if you can very briefly tell us what it is about what you've written, and what you were really after in the book.
0: So I was interested in thinking about how women were represented in Israeli cinema. When I studied the book, there were maybe a couple of dozen films that had ever been made by women. And so the majority of Israeli cinema, the, the portrayed women on screen was made by men, and I was interested in thinking about what the traditional representations were, what archetypes existed. In the process of writing the book, the Israeli film industry really changed. And um, there was a significant increase in the number of women who began making films and were making first films and women who had made one film were now making two and three. And so the book really expanded to think about what it means to make feminist films, what it means to represent women in cinema, and then how feminism has really affected uh, the representations that we end up seeing on screen. So the book is divided into three sections and each section has three chapters in it. The first section examines women in the military and in the conflict and really looks at how these Iconic and archetypal tropes of Israeli cinema are redeployed when you include women in them. And does adding women in a mix, in a role that we traditionally associate with men, make the film feminist? Does it give us a different perspective? Is it a way for arguing for women's inclusion and equality? And what we find is actually it's a really mixed bag, that on one hand, um, the inclusion of women reminds us of the presence of women. But there are ways in which their agency can then be undermined by the diegesis of the film so that ultimately we come to think of women as passive, as less able than men, and discourages us from seeing women in those comparative spaces.
1: Excuse me, you're saying saying that the films you look at explore this kind of dynamic?
0: So the films I look at explore um, different ways of including women in military spaces and then thinks about, and then I think about. I The films provide different ways of presenting women in military spaces and then my reading of those films examines whether those representations really encourage a position that makes us think about women's inequality, women's inclusion, women's agency, uh, women's subjectivity, or whether ultimately they serve to reinforce prejudices about women and their ability to participate in these traditional male spaces, whether they ultimately undermine their authority and subjectivity, and really reinforce the idea that women shouldn't be in those spaces.
1: This is this is really very interesting, uh, and I want to talk to you more about this. You've raised some really really provocative questions, and uh, it's it's also interesting the way you go about it in the book. And there's some films you discuss that would that I would like to ask you questions about. So that's the first part. What's the second part?
0: The second part began to look at how women from the margins were being represented. So the first women we see in Israeli cinema who are other, who aren't part of the central hegemonic Sabra narrative of Mizrahi women. And at first we see them really represented as prostitutes or, um, women who are being oppressed by a Mizrahi patriarchal culture and can be rescued by a benevolent Ashkenazi man. And then Increasingly, we see those women being represented in ways that essentially connect them to a primitivity uh, that is really focused on witchcraft and magic and as if these women have a source of alternate power. Um, I looked at how religious women were being depicted, and again, we saw the same pattern, that it was about representing women who were being oppressed by patriarchal society and could be rescued by secular men from this religious enclave. And, um, And in the process, as I was writing these chapters, women from those groups had begun to make films. And so I wanted to see how women representing their own communities made those films differently or made different comments. And what I found was it wasn't really a condition of whether it was a male or female making a lot of the films, but how they thought about the subject matter that really changed our perception of it. And then I... um, uh, we need to think about how these representations of women's bodies and availability and sexual availability, which really dominate the early representations of these women, get reclaimed in a feminist narrative where women start to say, well, if I'm making films about my sexuality, about prostitution, about women's issues, how would I represent those? Because it's not about a male audience and a male gaze. It's about a representation of women's understanding of those issues and how would how would they change what we had come to expect was the norm in Israeli cinema. And then the third section really looks at how feminist activists have taken on the film industry as a way to use it for feminist activist agendas. And so we talk about um, <clears throat> uh, rape and uh, social movements progressive politics as being instrumental for thinking about contemporary feminism. And so these chapters look at how feminists make films differently about issues like rape, about foreign workers and and then the, the afterword to the book really looks at how women within the film industry itself became activists to change the situation of women employees, uh, women's access to resources, the reviews of women's films by working within the film industry itself to make it a better climate for women to make films in.
1: I see. It's I, I have um, many questions about the various things that you mentioned, but before I do, I wanted to ask you a general question about the role of women and women representation in the book. Are you talking about... Is your book talking about the way women are represented in cinema as well as the way uh, women's are, women are represented uh, in films that are made by women? In, 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 in other words, are you making any kind of a differentiation between the so-called passive rep, rep, representation of women and representation of women by other women? No. Women filming.
0: So when I started, I was really just looking at the representation of women, uh, how they appeared, what kind of character roles they played, what we would tend to see, grouping them into um, the kinds of roles that women were playing on screen. As I began writing a couple of different things were happening. Women who had been actresses were gaining more agency and women screenwriters were working with male directors so they had more power and were able to impact what we were seeing on screen. So even when men were making those films, women were reshaping some of those narratives and... uh, sort of rethinking what we would come to understand. So, for example, the actress Hiyama Bas has an interview where she talks about looking at a script and then sending back her comments to the screenwriter and to the director and saying, I really want to work on your film. I really like it. But here's what I think the character would do. Because she's engaged in this process and she changed our understanding almost single handedly of how Arab women could be represented. And instead of them being passive creatures who uh, sort of faded in the background and floated in pastoral village scenes, she showed us women who could be actively engaged but still dressed modestly? Who could be politically aware or have uh, uh, interest in pursuing uh, a degree, a profession, a line of work while still being women who were committed to family values? And and that was something we
1: hadn't seen before. And this is uh, just for uh, the listeners to perhaps be um, more. Um A little bit more background, this is an uh, Israeli-Palestinian film actress.
0: Yes, And, and she would go on to actually direct films herself as well later. So that these women, she had become a fairly prominent actress, and she began to use her capital, her cultural capital, as an actress who was much in demand to make sure that the representation of Palestinian women was... Um, more thoughtful, more reflective, less stereotypical. And so when you ask, was I looking at women directors or was I looking at women characters? I was actually looking at, I started from the position of looking at the characters. I was really interested in what was happening in the film. And Then I began to see these changes and you could identify that the changes on screen were happening because of things outside of of the screen, things that were happening in society, things that were happening in terms of feminism within Israel, which comes relatively
1: late by Western standards. Um, Let me ask you again a general question before we proceed into more details, and that is about the critical context of your book. I wanted to ask whether the book is part of an ongoing discourse or you feel this is something new that you're introducing and you are perhaps even trailblazing.
0: So there's an expression in feminist film theory, which is um, to talk about doing spade work, to doing the preliminary work that identifies patterns that allows other people to then take that material and go and run with it. And I think in many ways, this project ended up being a kind of work, which was not how I, which was not how I entered it. But once I was in the thick of the material, and there was so much of it, that it became a question of just unearthing as much of this as I could, in a reasonable amount of um, page space, to identify something that hadn't really been talked about in the film industry. We had seen a lot of books coming out about different periods of film. We had seen a lot about masculinity and gay cinema, but there hadn't been anything that was written. There weren't any books on women and women in the film industry. And and what there were were generally articles that focused mostly on documentary filmmaking, because it has lower barriers to entry. So women were getting into documentary filmmaking a lot earlier than they were into feature filmmaking. And we were seeing it in relation to uh, Michal Batadam, who is not technically the first Israeli woman filmmaker, but is the woman that we came to see as the first woman filmmaker. Uh, She was extremely prolific. She began making films in... Um, the late 70s. She herself had been an actress and she was also married to a man who was himself a filmmaker. So she had a kind of status in the film industry that other women didn't have
1: for a long time. Uh, this This is really very interesting and that's what I thought. Now, I wanted to focus more specifically on the sections you mentioned, beginning with the first one, which I presume is the one that attracts most attention uh, by readers. And I also think that most of the reviews of your book focused on the first part, which discusses the role of women in the military. And one of the interesting things that you discuss in this section is the tension between the, uh, the, the, the power of the military to empower women in principle and the inability of it to do so in the last analysis. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. So
0: the idea of representing women in the film in in the Israeli army goes back to the very first Israeli films ever made. The, uh, the most famous sort of starting point for Israeli cinema is Hill 24 Doesn't Answer, which was made in 1955, and is the story of four soldiers whose stories are told retroactively uh, as they're dying on a hill in the battle for independence. And the three men who are in the military unit have these complete narratives that are told in flashbacks, whereas the women appear in their narratives, but never have narratives of their own. We don't see their flashback or their journey. And... Of the the four people in the immediate unit, one of them is a female, and we just never get her story. And yet in the closing scene of the film, it's her who's holding the flag. And so we end up with this iconography
1: not only holding the flag, but dying for her country.
0: Right, she's dying for. Her, she sort of falls before us. The flag pops out of her hand. This is how they claim the hill, and so we have this female sacrifice, but we don't have a story for a female. And there are other women in the film. There are bruised women. There is a Mizrahi woman who's literally called Mizrahi, and while they help the men in all kinds of ways. They we are, we are told they aren't the most important characters by virtue of the fact that in the end, the film focuses on the men's narrative. And this sort of sets up a paradigm for women, that they can be auxiliaries, they can be nurses and wives and girlfriends and mothers and widows. And they can man the radios and they can offer comfort. But they they are there to make men's heroism happen. And so that's the pattern we're really given. And it isn't until the 80s that we really see women soldiers as fighting uh, military figures. And that's that's really bizarre that in a a culture that has produced a huge number of war films, the idea that women, even though they were uh, an integral part of the army from the beginning, are really seen as not included and not important in the stories we're trying to tell about Israel's history and so and and of course the cinema was extremely political. It was seen as an organ that could represent the situation of the state not only to people who were new immigrants to inculcate the values of the new state but also to an international global, marketplace who could learn about the heroism and how important these processes of nation building were, both for political support, but also for fundraising purposes. And so this exclusion of women from the narrative is is really um, unusual, given the attention that was paid to talking about women's equality as part of society. And so there's a real break between the ideology, which was socialist, and f- women had the vote from the very beginning. And they were certainly included. Israel has a, f- has a female prime minister very early by world standards. And these things make Israel think that it's a, a feminist, egalitarian society. And then the reality keeps interrupting that narrative. So, for example, in 1973, the Yom Kippur War happens, and all of a sudden we discover there are no bus drivers. And the country grinds to a halt because all the bus drivers were male and there wasn't a single female bus driver. So it takes moments like that to highlight the inequality that exists. And still, feminism doesn't really get going in as a mainstream political argument until the very late 80s and early 90s. And so what we see, we see a film by Asi Dayan, of all people, who was the iconic male soldier hero. Um, and he made, he writes this script called Banot. Uh, I, I think in England, in English, it's called We're in the Army Now where he creates a unit of female soldiers. And it's really a radical idea of just creating a unit of women soldiers. And they do all of the same kinds of social engagement and melting pot ideals that we had seen in the comparative films about men. And they end up coming together and being heroic And at the very end, they're given their assignments for their next tasks and they're all sent to auxiliary roles. And you realize that even in this cute comedy, you have this sort of tension between, yay, they all get to go into the units that suit them in terms of their personality. And on the other hand, wow, even though they engage in a masterful, uh, physical a, 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 a defensive operation that rescues one of the girls from attack, ultimately they can only, the most they can aspire to be is auxiliaries. And I, in my book, I talk about this as a proto-feminist phase, where we're starting to put women into these roles that men have traditionally had, and yet we aren't quite sure what to do with them.
1: So uh, are there any films, you talked a lot about films that support the patriarchy and uh, even if they purport not to do so but um, are there any films that try to do different things with the representation of women and perhaps advance it or radicalize it or present these roles in a
0: in terms of the military i think I think in terms of the military, the most radical ones are actually the Israeli chick flicks, which is a genre that we don't think of radical and groundbreaking um, because we treat it sort of lightly with disdain. But I think that they were very interesting because they uh, really attack masculinity and they show that during the Gulf War, men couldn't participate in militarism. That The war is happening in the domestic space. It's happening in the houses. It's happening in um, the kibbutzim, right? People flee to the kibbutzim, which have become the safety space yet again. And so there's a flipping of what had become the narrative that the people who are on the edges fight while the the center of the country is protected and here it's the center of the country that's under attack but there isn't you know there aren't guns and there aren't boots and there aren't military uniforms and there aren't call-up notices and it, it re- it's really interesting to contrast that. The scenes of empty Tel Aviv and empty supermarkets with something like Every Bastard a King from 1968, which has Yoramga on as a soldier in the Six-Day War, running through the empty city of Tel Aviv on his way to take up his military um, duty. And so in those chick flicks, who becomes the hero? If the men cannot be heroic, if the men cannot do the things that we consider traditional masculine roles for men in Israeli society, which is to fight and protect the homeland, then they sort of become these um, emasculated figures. And the women take control and they help organize people. They keep calm. They maneuver the situation. They engage in a level of equality that we actually can't see in the earlier films. And so they help us rethink both war, which is changing, and also the role of women in those spaces. By instead of trying to make women soldiers, which things like Zero Motivation and Close to Home and 514 tried to do... And then sort of get stuck in the question of, well, but if women become exactly like men, that also isn't a feminist statement because we're now anti-war and we're leftist and we're pacifists and war is a bad thing and the oppression of Palestinians is a bad thing. So we cannot make women do the kinds of things that male heroes did in the 1960s and 70s because we don't believe those things. Um It it rethinks that entirely by saying, well, let's take everybody out of the space of militarism and then think about what heroism really is in the face of fear. So I think they're really radical in a way that we don't expect.
1: Rachel, can we um, move now to talk about the second section of your book about Mizrahi women? You mentioned sexuality as part of the representation. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about it, especially since you did not. Mention the subject so much um when you discuss the first section
0: so women in Israeli cinema have traditionally been associated with the domestic space. We see women in inside the home inside women only communities uh, such as the the seminary, the religious seminary, and when directors start making films about religious women and Mizrahi women, they're really interested in the question, the larger question, about men's relationship to one another. So what is the relationship between Mizrahi men and Ashkenazi men or religious men and secular men? And we see this attempt to create a dynamic where the men are – essentially in conflict with one another in order to protect women. And so women again end up tangential to the larger questions that we're talking about. And when we do see them represented, their representation really is for the male audience and is very voyeuristic in its nature. And there is a tendency to want to represent women that we would not otherwise see exposed suddenly naked. And so we see naked women at the mikveh and we see naked women um, having illicit relationships with other women inside seminary groups. And we see uh, women being attacked and women being raped and women in the marriage bed. And these are not spaces in which secular film directors would have had access mm-hmm. to women period, but also that their contact with these women is really a fantasy of male ideas about women rather than a representation of women themselves. And so there is this trend that we see, particularly in the early films, of trying to portray women as um, oppressed and could only be saved by these male directors. So for example, in Kadosh, we see um, this truly grueling experience for religious women and yet we spend a lot of time seeing these religious women naked. And essentially, we're told by the secular filmmaker here, we must rescue religious women from these patriarchal, abusive, violent, uh, ultra-Orthodox men. We see a similar thing in um, Michel Khalifi's representation of wedding in Galilee, where we have this Arab woman who's suddenly completely naked in the middle of our screen, a uh, display that we would not normally have access to. And when women begin to make these films themselves about their own communities, they're really pushing back against these male fantasies and male ideas about women and actually representing women. And they move the conversation away from sex to a conversation about human emotion and romance and love and kindness. And they re-emphasize the humanity of females inside these specific groups. Rather than them as objects of male attention and lust and protection. And it isn't just women who do it. There's a fabulous film by Marco Carmel called Achotia Yafa, My Beautiful um, Sister. And he really pays attention to the stereotypes that had been used to represent. Mizrahi community, and then inverts them, and and in doing so, he really challenges our acceptance of stereotypes.
1: I see. So, um, uh, why isn't sexuality then part of your discussion in the process? So
0: in. So in the third in the third chapter inside that section I actually talk about the longer history of sexuality in the Zionist context which is that women were paralleled with the land and the pioneering sabra and the new Jew were fertilizing the land and fertilizing women and in fact in the very early films Women are being impregnated in the field. Literally, the romance happens outside in the field, and is part of this continuity. And when the woman has a child in something in, in films such as They Were Ten in 1961, she then dies. She has the child. The child is the purpose. And once she has the child, she is no longer needed, and and is you know killed off in the film. And so there was this real expectation that women were sexually available to men so that men could do the things they needed to do to be national heroes. And we see it in military films, right? Women are the objects of lust. They're the girlfriends. They're the wife at home. They're the the war widow. So they have this role either to sort of sexually service the men or to stand as living memorials for the men after they've died. And they don't really have agency. And then what happens is the women begin as they begin to make films themselves to ask questions about women's sexuality. How do women engage in um, with their bodies, with other women, with uh, with men? How do they understand those things? And we there's a, a really amazing film called Bye Bye to Love, where the filmmaker is really attempting to experiment with feminist film aesthetics. If we always assume that the cinematic gaze is male and that everybody who is looking is male, right? The cameraman is male and the director is male and the audience is male or has been socialized with a male gaze to think about things in a particular way how can we rethink those very tools by which we make films? And it's a group of women sitting around a dinner table just talking about their breakups and the child that they have and how they feel about it. And the entire film was made with a camera on a trolley at eye level going around the table, and the rest of the set crew were in a different room so that there was an attempt to create a more organic engagement. The the story is interrupted with video images of women in wedding dresses and engaging with their wedding dress. How do they feel about that experience? Do they feel chained? Was it the most wonderful moment of their lives? And so it's asking questions differently about the role of relationships in women's identity. And I think that's really... Uh, a change from where we started with Zionism.
1: I see this is really interesting. I I haven't heard of this film, and you mentioned something very um, fascinating. Um, Now, going uh, forward to the third section, how do you see this dynamics being changed with um, the, the entry of women directors, entry of women filmmakers into the picture? How is the direction of the cinema and the uh, quality of representation changing.
0: So I really mark the first feminist film as Tel Aviv Stories, which came out in the early 1990s, Um, because it was these three short stories that came together and represented women at different stages in society. They were... Um, rich, and they were poor, and they were old, and they were young, and they were Mizrahi, and they were Ashkenazi, and they were um, professionals, and they were models, and they were doctors, and they were police women. I mean, all of this range that we had never seen before. And each of the storylines essentially has a woman chasing her own destiny and ultimately making the decision about her life herself. And that agency was really something unusual. But even though the early 90s and the mid-90s begin to see a few more women, we're seeing one woman or one film by a woman every year or every other year. Um, We don't see a significant number until about the early 2000s. And in Israel in 2004, two films come out to Take a Wife by Ronit Alkabats and Or My Treasure by um,
1: Karen uh,
0: Karen Hedaya. And the both women were avowed feminists. And that was something that we hadn't really discussed in terms of the film industry. And the two women with Michal cre- um worked together and ultimately ended up creating something called the Women's Film and Television Filmmakers and, and Television Artists Forum. And this idea that a group of women would meet and discuss issues in the film industry was something new, and in the process of doing it, they began to identify areas where women were being excluded or where they were not getting the support they needed. They began to notice patterns. They realized that there weren't women sitting necessarily on the film funds that were rewarding money. They went back to the film funds and they advocated to the film funds that there should be more women involved In the process of adjudicating who received the funding. They noticed there were no women reviewers. None of the women reviewers were. There was one woman reviewer for Time Out and she wasn't being included in the ratings. And otherwise, all of the reviewers of films that gave the ratings were men. They noticed that the networks that men had often came from the army. And so if they were looking for a cameraman or a a videographer or a, a sound engineer, they knew some guy who knew some guy. And so just the very act of creating a network allowed women to access other women to be able to tell them about job opportunities. In the process, they also began to discuss abuses and they had their own Me Too scandal and trial by journalism of a major Israeli film actor before the Me Too movement came out in the US with Harvey Weinstein. And ultimately, the man was tried and found guilty on a number of counts. And that was part of their activism. And, and they were Concerned with the systemic issue that had allowed that to happen, which was that there weren't sexual harassment protections for women in contract labor. And so they went and advocated for a change of the law. And so they actually changed the law on how uh, sexual harassment works in the workplace and holds contract labor also uh, responsible for these kinds of um, issues. And so that was a huge change. To the way the culture of cinema worked. But we also see women taking on feminist issues and making films about them. For example, rape and rape prevention. There's a long history of rape in Israeli movies, and there's a rape comedy. I mean, it's like a preposterous idea in this day and age to think about rape as something that we joke about. And yet if we look at early 1980s films in the U.S., we see the same kind of thing going on in 16 Candles, for example. And these women said, well, let's start with the idea that you don't represent a woman naked on screen, because when you show a rape and you have a naked woman, are you sure it isn't titillating and isn't voyeuristic and isn't actually about sex rather than power for the audience? And so just taking that dynamic away makes us think about how rape is represented differently. And Michal Aviad's Invisible is a really important moment in recasting this kind of representation. We also see them making films about foreign workers. And foreign workers are a gender issue because um, about 70 to 80% of all foreign workers in Israel are in the healthcare industry, and the majority of those are female. And they essentially, by taking care of women's homes and, and the sick and the elderly, free up Israeli women to engage in the workplace. And so the labor is gendered, the activity releases some women, and at the same time, the women who are doing the labor who are coming from other countries have often left their own families behind. And so When the law um, began to crack down on illegal workers and on um, the children of foreign workers, the filmmakers felt like this was a humanitarian and a human rights issue and began to make films that thought through these problems of gender and family and to create sympathy for foreign workers in a way that pushed back against um, right-wing government perspectives that were painting uh, these foreign workers as somehow a destroyer of Israeli social values. And that, that was a really powerful political thing that they did, and they organized rallies around it. Um, and, and later we see, Dina you know, Riklis makes a film about called The Ambassador's Wife, which looks at like an Eritrean refugee and how she ends up in Israel. And the it, the film comes out really immediately after a wave of violence in Tel Aviv against African migrants and African refugees and during attempts to expel the African refugees and essentially send them back to war zones, And what's so clever is by making the character female, we have sympathy for the woman and we see her story and we see how she becomes a refugee and she doesn't embodies a threatening narrative that had been used, which was, oh, these Africans will come and rape our women. And that narrative fed into all of the historical Zionist fears that um, the Jewish body would be defiled, that infiltrators would destroy the country, that men were evil and only the good men could protect the Jewish woman and the Israeli woman from the bad man. And so knowing all of these things about the rhetorical devices that we see in Zionism and then how they're turning up in the films, by inverting that, we were left with a position where we could see how, in fact, refugees are people who are homeless and escaping war zones and whose life is in danger, and it is our humanitarian obligation to provide them with some kind of
1: protection. So, Rachel, you described a very political proactive um, uh, efforts on on behalf of uh, women to change the industry but have their proactive efforts increased the number of female uh, filmmakers and I'm reminded here of an interesting phenomenon in uh, modern Hebrew literature whereby until about I would say the late 80s early 90s the majority of writers were male. And um, throughout the 90s and into the present, we see a rapid increase of the number of female writers, so that we have today almost a parity, if not a um, sort of, I would say, uh, majority women writers. So how is that playing out in the cinema industry in Israel?
0: There have been real efforts to... Increase women's participation, Uh, what we would think of in American terms as um, uh, affirmative action projects. And um, they were really a reaction to the absence of women in some of these positions. And so one of the examples is the Screenwriting Award. The the Rehovot Women's Annual Film Festival, which ran for 10 years, created a screenwriting award. And what was so interesting about it was that one of the arguments that film funds were making was that there were no scripts by women, and therefore that's why they weren't funding them. And so by creating this Women-Focused Screenwriters Award – they said, well, let's see if there are scripts by women. Maybe we can encourage women. And in the first year, they had something like 50 scripts. And they've had hundreds and hundreds since then. And even though the Rehobot Film Festival closed, they've managed to keep the screenwriting um, grants alive, which has meant that women are getting funding to make the scripts and it, and it really disproved the film fund's arguments. But yes, those films were definitely being written. But for whatever reason, somebody was functioning in a way that was gatekeeping and preventing the women from getting funding for these films, and then to be able to make them. Another thing has been the Greenhouse Project, which brings together every year um, Jewish and Arab filmmakers, documentary filmmakers in Israel in order to help them work on a film. They have workshops, they have mentors, and they have some funding that allows them to make a short promo film so that they can then take that to go and apply for funding um, from other places. And so those projects have helped women. I mean, what, what the, the feminists noticed was that women were getting stuck that men, that they had almost parity in the film course, but then five years out, men were making their second or third feature film and women hadn't made a single one. And they were trying to understand at what point was there the bottlenecks that prevented women getting access. Um, Tonya Daya also talks about the problem of having a baby. She wanted to have a baby and she writes in one of her film applications, you know, I need to finish this script and I want to make this film. I know that what I'm sending you right now isn't quite ready, but it will be by the time filming happens. If you give me this grant now, I can make the film. If you don't, I'm going to go and have another baby because I have a limited amount of time in which I can do that and I'll have to make the film afterwards. And they don't fund her and she goes and has her second child. And she says, you know, The prime years for filmmaking and for professional success happen at exactly the same time as um, the clock is running out on women's fertility. And how do you make films and have children? Because film sets have long hours and um, strange schedules. And what what are you doing with a newborn child or a child under three who isn't yet in school? And those questions are really... An issue for women, I think, not just in the Israeli film industry, but more broadly about being able to participate in the same way that men do. And maybe we need to have a larger conversation about how industries themselves need to change so that they are more um, welcoming to not just women, but men to be able to have family lives.
1: Yes, this is an interesting take on the old question, a new take on the old question of the relationship between art and life. And with that, I wanted to um, thank you very much for speaking with us about your book, which I recommend warmly, and wanted to thank you again.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome.